Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Well, it's been about six years since we first heard of uh, super shoes in running, and that's when Nike developed their new Vaporfly, which uh, sent many of the uh, athletics people around the world, not only runners, but organizations and World Athletics and all the other brands into a frenzy of uh, rules and all sorts of things that they had to control, because these shoes came along and they decided that, they, well, didn't decide, we could see straight away that the results of those shoes were that runners could run faster using the mechanical advantage of a shoe. And uh, as a result of that, um, there were lots of things that happened around World Athletics, where World Athletics then had to put a whole bunch of rules in place ahead of the Olympics in, in Tokyo in 2020, which essentially happened in 2021. And those rules made sure that those competitors that participated in the shoes, were, all those shoes were available and freely available to everybody, but uh, there were rules limiting what technology could be used. Ross, is that a fair summary of how you can describe the 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 onset of the super shoe era of road running shoes? Yeah, fair enough. I reckon it's probably a straight line summary of something mm. that actually went round in circles a lot of the time back then. Um, but that's pretty much the gist of it. Mm. Now, what was interesting is that when we did our first podcast on this three years ago now, we were almost sort of a year and a half afterwards. The, the, the impact of the shoe had been felt quite strongly in terms of marathon and road running events. And obviously that technology then went into track spikes. Um, and obviously there was an advantage there as well in terms of track spike and that sort of thing. But what was interesting and what the controversy was, was that when the World Athletics came up with the, the guidelines into what, as to what shoe manufacturers could do, 40 millimeters of stack height, the carbon footplate, all that sort of thing, mm. it literally was almost exactly what Nike had done with the shoe. And all the other competitors, the Adidas's and the Pumas and the Under Armour's and all those sort of brands then sort of cried foul and said, well, you're basically given guidelines that give Nike such a massive advantage that it's going to take us two years to catch up. Yeah, so it's quite clear Nike had first mover advantage on this, and we'll discover more about that in, a, in an interview you'll play for shortly. Mm. Uh, other brands can claim all they want that they were on the same trajectory, but the fact of the matter is Nike got to the, call it whether you call it the finish line or the start line, quite a lot before them. The, I suppose the, the, the issue there was there was no regulation in place before. Mm-hmm. So there was no mechanism by which the authorities could evaluate a new piece of equipment, which is different from most other sports. But not the first time a sport has been caught out by this. The swim, swimming world went through a similar thing back in 2008 where they had to effectively create guidelines in response to technological innovation. Mm. And that's eventually where track and field got to. And I remember even before World Athletics um, brought out those guidelines. There was a paper by Jeff Burns, who was one of the people we interviewed on this podcast about it, and 
a PhD student of mine called Nick Tam. Well, he was a PhD student. He's now finished his PhD. And they were the ones who wrote about regulating stack height. Because, in fact, I think even in our first podcast, we were talking about regulating the content, you know, the carbon fiber plate and so on. And I yeah. think Greg and Nick certainly persuaded me that you, you really just have to regulate the stack height because otherwise you create for yourself a regulatory challenge that probably can't be met by all but a few races in the world. Because now you've got to cut the shoe open or you've got to do an MRNI on the shoe. I mean, this is like Formula One levels in a simple... That's the beauty of running is its simplicity. So so just explain why... I mean, this is why... This is what I, mean, I don't understand, is that when we look at the technology, there was two principal components to this new technology. First mm. of all, the carbon plate inside the shoe. Yeah. And the second part was the foam. And right. obviously, the foam was created more rebounding effect. And obviously, the bigger stack height gave you more rebounding. But obviously, it was offset by a weight cost. And we'll talk a little yeah. bit about that a bit later on. Why was the stack height important in terms of not letting things get out of control. I, I, mm. I don't understand the technical reason why the stack height was important. I don't think, in, to be honest, I don't think anyone does. You know, I, I found a paper a week and a half ago um, that was published in Footwear Science very recently. This is a journal that publishes a lot of stuff on shoes, not just running, but yeah. for instance, we funded a study at rugby on how the stud orientation changes the forces on the knee for ACL injuries, etc. Anyway, Footwear Science, good journal. And this one was called the Nike Vaporfly 4%, a game changer to improve performance without biomechanical explanation. And it was published by four French authors. Um, and effectively, the paper, <laughs> it's one of those classic academic things that writes a lot to say we know very little. And, uh, <laughs> but it does give you actual numbers, doesn't it? Uh, uh, some, some. But anyway, the point is that there is still a, a fair amount that is unknown about how the shoe works. But... I think it's fair to say you're right. There are two there are two ingredients and three elements. The ingredients are the carbon plate and the midsole foam, and the element is the stack height. And you see the 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 midsole foam enabled the stack height. Mm. Because in the past, midsole foam was heavier, or you could make it really light, but then it wasn't resilient. It would mm. just be compliant and you'd squash it under your feet and you get no energy return at all. Mm. What what we've got now is midsole foam that returns more energy than anything ever before, and it's light, mm. and and it, it's got no density. So that allowed you to build up volume without mass. Make sense? Right. Yeah. And volume was important because it allowed you to create in the midsole what was effectively a scaffold for the carbon fiber plate. Mm. Because carbon fiber plates aren't new. They've been around since the 90s. Fila had a shoe. Adidas had something called the Pro Plate which uh, you, you discuss within this week yeah. leading into this interview. Um, but the problem was that the plates weren't achieving a net benefit because there was a trade-off where you, you saved a little bit of energy here or there, like at the toes, for instance, from a plate, and you had a longer lever, a stiffer lever, but the work done at the ankle was suddenly a lot higher. And so whatever benefit you got in A was cancelled out by some cost incurred at B. Make sense? And B was often a weight. A weight B was a weight issue because yeah. of the midsole costs. Yeah. And then with the carbon fiber plates, it was the length of the lever arm and the stiffness created work at the ankle, basically, mm. just mm. to give you mm. the summary of it. What the what the thickest midsole and that stack height enabled was a curvature of the plate that seems to have eliminated that cost. Mm. So there was no longer a trade-off. You got the benefit of energy saving in one place, but you didn't incur a cost elsewhere. So now it was only good news. Yeah, and so the three things together: the the foam enabled a stack height that enabled a plate that didn't create problems. Yeah, and it was those three things 
in the in one package that had never been achieved before. So that was the innovative breakthrough. Was mm. foam opened a door. Through that door, we drove a bus called the carbon fiber plate, and by blending the three elements together, we got more energy return than any shoe ever did. And mm. th- that's where it's fascinating to wonder whether the other five or six big shoe companies were on the same journey or whether they were going somewhere else and then said, hang on a moment, we've actually taken a wrong turn. We need to be on that path. <laughs> and then they imitated. Did, did they imitate? Are we going to find out about that or pretty did soon? They, you know, in other words, was it, was it from scratch imitation, reverse engineer, or were they simply accelerated along what they were already doing? That, that to me is quite interesting. But yeah. I mean, looking back on it now, this year we've had covid COVID did many things, and I suppose in the grand scheme, it's innocuous. But the interruption to the world marathon scene is quite frustrating because we haven't seen how this played out, would have played out without it, you know? Because as you said in your intro, there was a time when if you weren't in the Vaporfly, you weren't winning a race. The difference between yep. the difference between the shoes was bigger than the difference between athletes. Mm-hmm. And the best athletes were going to be the ones in, the best, in, the, in that shoe. We didn't get to see how that came back to normal or did it uh, now we've got marathons again and we're seeing athletes in adidas shoes and other shoes that are now asics for instance breaking national course records winning races so at surface level it looks like there's a degree of parity mm. but the reality is the sport has been recalibrated i mean there's no doubt that a 204 marathon from six seven years ago is a 202 marathon now and a 207 is now a 204 so Oh, you were quoted, I think, in an article that I saw online saying that you estimated the physical output Kipchoge needed for his 201.39, which he did um, on the road, world record in the Nike Vaporfly, equated to a 203 marathon in regular flats. Yeah, and that's, I mean, no one knew. No one, you are more or less. More I mean, less, I stand yeah. by it vaguely. <laughs> I don't remember saying that, by the way. I sometimes well, you quoted read, as saying that. I sometimes go on and I read articles on things that I'm interested in <laughs> and I see a quote and, I, I, and it's from me and I go, wow, I don't, I don't remember that's saying that. That's a good that. quote. <laughs> anyway, that's one of them. Because um, the, it's interesting, the, some of the stats, I mean, some of the stats that I've looked up is that in the Valencia Marathon in, in I think, 2019, 95 of the first 100 finishers were wearing Vaporfly shoes. Um, and when he looked at the analysis of the world rankings, that in 2019, twice as many men ran under, 20, under 210 and twice as many women ran under 227 as compared to 2016. And eight of the 12 fastest men's marathon in history had been run in that last year. So it showed you the impact of those shoes. And that, and that research study that you mentioned, that was the first research study that gave a sort of a fairly objective measuring of the advantage of these mechanical shoes. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the 4% name came from lab studies where they'd found that when you ran at a given speed, and it was quite a healthy pace these guys ran at in that first study, you used 4% less oxygen. Now, the inference you make is that if I can run the same speed at 4% less oxygen, I'm going to get some performance benefit. Mm. But it's not necessarily 4% because it doesn't translate one-to-one. So... When that first study came out, it's like, all right, 4%, but what does that really mean? And it's only been through the, the trial by fire, trial by stopwatch that racing creates that you've been able to quantify it properly. You know, New York Times did a big analysis based on Strava times they got hold of, and they showed that it was, I think, between 1% and 2% performance. Mm. And there's no doubt that an elite athlete is getting a benefit that is less than 4%. I mean, 4% takes a... 204 to sub two, right? I think that's too much. Sure. But yeah. 
but it's not. So, so the elite athletes getting less than four, but in my opinion, certainly more than one. Yeah, and so probably between one and two, and that's where that's where that estimate of mine came from. Track, by the way, is is similar. I mean, there was an analysis that was done uh, recently in the U.S. where in each of the last ten years, thirty-two college-aged men have run a sub-formant mile. Last year was thirty-eight. This year there are ninety. <laughs> now, now that's. So again, a sub four minute mile used to put you in the top thirty. It now puts you in the top ninety. That's the definition of recalibrating. Yeah, and it just means it's less valuable. So maybe nowadays the top thirty eight runs sub three fifty eight. So three fifty eight mm. is worth a four from five or six years ago. Yeah, and that's what it's done. Mm. So now we move on with the assumption that there's parity. I'm still not convinced, mm. and mm. I'm still not convinced that the same type of runner benefits because there is some evidence that's emerged sorry another thing COVID has done is it stopped studies from being done because you couldn't Mm. test humans there was a lockdown and you couldn't get people in the lab and test these shoes so I think in the next year or two we'll see an exponential increase in the studies on the shoes yeah a because there's more of the shoes and b more studies but there was a study that suggested that a rear foot striker would get a more uh, a greater benefit than a forefoot striker so in effect, mm. how the athlete interacts with the shoe becomes an element of talent ID. Because the technology itself was what they called the teeter-totter effect, isn't it? It's like it's a one seesaw. mechanism, yeah. So in other words, you create the sort of, when you land on the heel, it mm. then it bounds you forward as if you're on a seesaw and basically that weight goes forward and then pushes the other person as you would on a seesaw, it pushes that, you forward. And that is that is your first uh, experience of the shoe. You, you would have tried them on i've never tried a pair of vaporflies on but i have tried some of the adidas shoes yeah some of the yeah so when i was in when i was in first opportunity i got i went to the store in london and i tried it on and that's literally what you feel you feel like you're being rocked forward on the shoe it's like walking down a flight of stairs and you're walking across flat ground that's Mm. what it felt like to me i was weight my weight was being propelled Mm. forward so that's why it's not surprising people say oh it's a spring because it does it feels like it feels like a spring in you forward Mm. it's not well it is a spring because mm. it's returning energy. That's what springs do. But it's mm. not a it's not a pogo stick. <laughs> no. But it's so anyway, that, that teeter totter effect is one of the three or four mechanisms yeah. that it's thought to work through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean to give you some background, uh, there was a, a a story about the the Brooks running uh, group and obviously Brooks a massive brand in the US in particular. I think one of the leading if not the leading uh, running shoe brand and a gentleman by the name of Carson Caprara who was the head of footwear development for Brooks running in in the Tokyo Olympics in the 1500 meter final their star athlete a, a, a gentleman by the name of Josh Kerr got the bronze medal. And obviously they should have been celebrating that, but he was running in a pair of Nike spikes at the time because Brooks's technology hadn't caught up with the trend. And I think it's a good indication of the kind of pressure that the big shoe brands were on around the world, given what Nike had done. And we've seen stories since then talking about how Nike as a brand and Nike said its market share in running reached a record high in 2021 as a result of the Vaporfly sales. So it wasn't just the fact that they were producing great athletes, but actually commercially, it was an incredibly good thing because it put them at the top of the pile. Mm. Everybody wanted their shoes. They were the fastest shoes in the market. And even though other brands were catching up, there were shoes that you could wear as a non-professional would give you an advantage. And yeah, Adidas this, also got those shoes. I mean, if you got if you got two and a half percent and you were a 21 minute, um, yeah. 21 minute 5K park runner, that shoe is going to help you get under five, uh, under 20, under 20 minutes. minutes. Yeah. So there's a little bit of, 
I mean, it's yeah. who cares, right? But you do. Yeah. And I mean, you've been in the industry long enough that you would have seen dozens of promises made by shoes. So the initial stages was, here we go again, you know, another yeah, promise. Absolutely. But you see, then what they had was a billboard in the mm. form of that sub two marathon thing at Monza. Mm. They then repeated that with an even bigger billboard at the, the one that was eventually done in Vienna, where it successfully came off. And those were a showcase for mm. the shoe. They had Kipchoge and a bunch of pacemakers, and it was all... I mean, yeah, they, as a marketing exercise. It was brilliant marketing exercise. But Even though it didn't succeed the first time round, it, it was good marketing. And of course, yeah. when it succeeded the second time round, it was even exactly. better. Yeah. So, see, I mean, none of it would, marketing fails when there's no product, no substance behind it. Mm. Okay, it doesn't fail, but it wouldn't have done this. Mm. So, yeah, they, they um, remember there were cases of, I forget when it was, it would have been 2018 or 19, Ethiopian marathon runner, I think it was, had painted Adidas stripes over a Nike shoe. Yeah. Because obviously they hadn't received the overt permission that Josh Kerr got that you just mentioned. But the runners knew. They knew that the, if I wasn't in this shoe, I wouldn't be competitive. Jeff told us that in uh, in the interview we did with him because he himself is an elite ultra-endurance athlete. And he said, if I, if I wanted a realistic chance of winning, for instance, our Comrades Marathon South Africa, I'd be in that shoe. Yeah. Because if I wasn't, I might as well give her a two-kilometer head start. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it literally amounted. That's to. That's what it amounted to. You know, exactly. it's a, it, you know, four percent economy difference is the equivalent of running down a half a percent to a one percent gradient. Mm. So, the other way to think of it is, you're running a flat marathon, and everyone else is running a slightly downhill one. Yeah. Do you want to take your chances, or do you want yeah. to help join the downhill club? Yeah. So that's what it did, you know. And yeah. Anyway, people people forget now. But they, I don't think they've recalibrated. I mean, I see their re- reaction to certain performances. It's as if it meant the same as it did six years ago. Yeah. Um, but we've clearly moved on. You know, that 38 now plays 90. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. It's a massive effect. Yeah. I, I guess to some extent it's also made athletics and road running a bit more exciting in, in respect to the fact that they are breaking all these records. So people are running faster. Yes, as people listening to this podcast and you and I, people who know the sport, will say, yes, the technology, the technological advantages are obviously playing a massive role in this. But yeah. we are breaking records and it creates good good vibes, I think, for marathon yeah. running and I mean, any other kind of running. And we'll hear that again later. But mm. for me, I, I still think it's a net negative for the sport because – I'm an old-fashioned mm. Luddite when it comes to tech. You know, the biggest problem for me is like for, <laughs> Formula One is a cool showcase of tech, but I don't take seriously the, the driver ranking. Yes. Because the problem for well, Lewis Hamilton is doing nothing this year because he's in the wrong car. <laughs> <laughs> so the greatest ever is – so, and I get things change, and, but the same, the same conversation is true of Schumacher and it would have been true of the next guy and so on. You know, like – the problem that I think there is that the difference between two cars is, is bigger than the difference between two drivers. Mm. And Just, so you can't I mean, evaluate. It's, it's, Whereas it's, when I'm watching, sorry, last point, I was watching mm. tennis last night, the night before. I never once think if these players just swapped rackets, Nadal would win. Djokovic, okay, in this case, Djokovic would have beaten Nadal last night. I'd never, ever think that. Mm. But unfortunately, I'm still thinking that about the shoes, and that to me is not ideal. But I get, mm. I get that there are positive elements to it. And I guess the, the the naysayers will suggest that technology is part of sport, but as you as you've suggested correctly, there tennis is one of those where the technology is pretty much the same for everybody. So you're playing player against player, and I, and I guess even for sports like cycling, cycling essentially, yes, there are technological advancements, but 
in a Tour de France, somebody riding one team's bike versus another team's bike, the, 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 the gains are very marginal between those two kinds of bike, whether they're riding a specialized or a, yeah. a Pinarello. So um, you don't watch yeah. the Giro d'Italia and say, yes, if Carapaz had, had, his, had a specialized <laughs> yes. as opposed to Pinarello, yeah, he would have won that day. He would have yeah. hung on to Henley at the end there, you know? Yeah. I read that Colnago are going to bring out a new climbing bike for the Tour de France. I don't go, oh man, that's going to make it even more difficult to beat mm. Pogacar. No. And yeah. that's and that's how I want yeah. these sports so to be. Yeah. Formula One is the opposite because there, new technology coming out. Oh, Ferrari's got something new. That's quite mm. exciting because mm. now it's a race. It's it's a showcase for the tech sports. Yeah. In my opinion, these sports shouldn't be that. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway. Well, I'm sure that lots of you may disagree or agree with uh, Professor Ross Tucker on that point. Um, it is a very controversial one. But let's get into the interview. And this is why everything we've been discussing so far is a precursor to an interview I did with Simon Lockett, who is the category director for uh, Adidas Running, the racing footwear category. And Simon leads the overall strategy for product creation and go-to-market approach for both Adizera Racing Footwear and the Durama franchise, which is all part of the Adidas um, uh, brand. And I was a guest of Adidas. Uh, they took me over to their um, big headquarters in Herzo in Germany a couple of weeks back. And uh, we got to chat to um, not only Simon and, and the team, but we got to see the, the, the very um, con con uh, confidential training facility that they have. So when you go in there, you're not allowed to take photographs. You're not allowed to take any notes. Um, and when we were doing this interview, because there was a lot of secrecy around the new super shoes that they were bringing out, which ironically had been used on the footwear of the runners who did the race to records literally a couple of hours earlier. We weren't allowed to mention the new shoes, but um, there's a lot of secrecy. There's a lot of uh, rooms that you have to go in and leave all your equipment behind and all that sort of thing. It feels very clandestine in, in some respects, mm. but it shows you the level of which they want to keep things quite under wraps and they're very careful about what they sort of show. And when we did the interview with Simon, I, full disclosure here, we had a PR person in there making sure that Simon didn't say anything wrong about new shoes that came out. And as you'll hear in the interview, and, and I know Ross has listened to the interview and just as we build up to all this podcast, and we're probably going to interrupt sections of the interview to sort of look at what Simon was saying. But what's interesting is that we asked him pretty direct questions. Um, but he probably doesn't answer them quite as directly as we would like him to answer them back to us, particularly around their reaction to the Nike shoes, because yeah. that was the key question. Did they respond to Nike? And and you'll see Simon kind of avoids that subject a little bit. But uh, yeah. let's let's listen to so, Simon. So just, yeah. just on that, um, as a general theme, because the way, as, as you've just said, we're going to play the interview and interrupt it possibly quite often, whenever yes. one of us has a, a comment in response to what we hear. Um, and, and and I'll be interested to know, like, because I could see where you were going with the questions, and he was um, <laughs> he was he was ducking and diving like Muhammad Ali on a rope. Well, he had a PR form, person was, looking down, <laughs> and uh, I'd be interested to know what your thoughts were at the time. So so you can do the same. But as a general theme, the the secrecy around this stuff, I don't think helps them. In my opinion, I think one of the big coups with the Vaporfly was the paper that was published saying it was 4%. Yeah. And it was one of the first times that that actually said, these are the elements of the shoe. They showed pictures of it, what it looked like cut up. And they said, this is what we tested. This is what we found. And I think it actually gave significant momentum to their campaign. And I don't understand. I mean, I do, but it, I don't agree with the relative secrecy of other companies that have subsequently said, no, we can't talk about it. Because if you don't talk about it, the assumption will be made that it's inferior to the thing that preceded it. Mm. 
Like that's mine. When he when when he f- refuses to tell exactly what the size of the performance benefit is, the the skeptic in me immediately says, "Well, it must be less than four percent then, because otherwise you'd say it." Right. <laughs> well, that's why I had to ask the question. Exactly. Anyway, enough. Yeah, we don't want to give so, too so much that's away. a general thing. Let's 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 go through it and interrupt him regularly. Here's Simon Lockett. So, Simon, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. Um, when we were discussing who we should talk to around these super shoes that have come into the zeitgeist of running in the last couple of years, we thought well, you would be the best person because you've really been at the coalface of the development of the Adios shoe. So the first question is, what did you th- think when you first saw Nike's first foray into the space? And what was Adidas's kind of first thoughts around suddenly the, these new shoes that have now become commonplace? So I think we've always been developing footwear year in, year out. It's a continuous cycle of, okay, how do we get better? How do we make our athletes run faster? And what can we do as a group to help them run faster? So it wasn't necessarily looking so much at what Nike were doing or any other specific brand. It was then assessing, are we on the right track with ourselves? Have we got the best ingredients for our athletes? There's been a huge shift as we know in the industry in the past few years and different elements have come into different shoes and times have got faster, which is amazing. So, so you're saying you you didn't react to Nike's Vaporfire, Alpha Flyers, all those things? It wasn't so much a reaction because within ourselves, we were already trying to, you know, spin things and get things going. But your technology was more based around lightness. The anti-zero range was obviously part of that. Yeah. But I mean, the, the technology around carbon was something that, potentially started with Nike that you followed. Am I, am I, is it wrong to say that? I, well, if you went back in the archive, we have the Pro Plate, which was carbon. And we obviously have the Adios, the Adi Zero Pro, excuse me, before, which was a low profile boost, light strike with a carbon insert as well. So I think carbon has been in the industry for a while and I don't necessarily think it was the carbon factor. It was low profile to high stack. Mm-hmm. It was a huge shift, I think. And that was one of the things then we adapted to because then you start to understand, okay, we have a great shoe, say Adios Boost before, if you go back to 2014 mm. and the good times then. And trying to understand if we then start pumping up stack heights using different inserts, what is the performance benefit that we get back from that? So it wasn't so much a reaction, it was more an understanding of, okay, this is where it's going. And clearly people are running fast in these shoes based on different mechanics, different geometries. Yeah, so when I heard this for the first time, that's all quite reasonable. Yeah. I think it's, there's no doubt that these companies have innovation departments and they weren't sitting on their hands for six, seven years, hmm. right? What would be really interesting to know is whether they had a team looking at stack height before. They must have done because like Hoka had come out with that shoe with the True. stack height. True. And there'd also been a minimalist phase back in about 2008, 9, 10. And Adidas didn't really go for that. Um, then again, none of the major companies did. I think they realized mm. you can't sell nothing. Or you can't sell barefoot. They had to sell technology because otherwise nobody would have bought right. a shoe. <laughs> you can't sell minimalism as for yeah. as much as you can sell innovation. So, it, so, so, so obviously there would have been conversations around playing around with the thickness and so on. As you mentioned, they did have a pro plate. So... Yeah, it's, it would be really interesting to have been a fly on the wall in, in their regular meetings. And this would be true of all companies, by the way, and ask, were they surprised 
that mm. Nike got it or not. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic example for those of you, I mean, most of you won't be journalists, and, and this is a good insight into what happens for us as journalists, is that trying to get the information out of people and get them to admit that they were basically following another trend is obviously very difficult to do. What he does make a good point about, and he actually corrected on me, is that he's quite right in saying that it was less about the carbon footplate mm-hmm. and more about the stack heart, which was important in right. terms of the technology. Because, and one interesting, sorry, go on. Because the carbon footplate had existed before. Yes, and an interesting story about that is there's a guy called Darren Stephenson. He's one of the leading footwear biomechanists. I think he's out of Canada now, probably has been for a long time. And he was the guy who studied the pro plate initially. And the one I mentioned earlier, they'd found that the, the carbon plate reduced the mechanical energy loss at the, it's called the metatarsophalangeal joint, basically the toe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, but, but that it I mentioned earlier that trade-off. So you might save a bit of energy there, but you had the trade-off to the to the ankle. Mm. One of the guys who worked on their PhD under Stephenson ended up with Nike and was responsible for the development. He's named in the patent application for the Vaporfly. So there is a there is a straight line between those two things, the the, pla- the carbon plate of the Adidas shoe by, by means of the characters, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And also, I remember when Oscar Pistorius was uh, running back in, that was also 2008-9, and the whole argument around the carbon fiber blades there was a lot of discussion then about the technology of the blades and why they were curved the way that they were, whether their stiffness was performance enhancing and gave him advantages. Obviously, they were super light, much lighter than a human limb, which Peter Wayand, who's maybe the best sprint biomechanist in the world, argued was the reason for the advantage he had. Mm. But there was discussion then about, and people literally speculated then that it was a matter of time before that curvature of carbon fiber made its way into the shoe. So... They, these guys would definitely have known that this was on the horizon, but they were not. They didn't reach the horizon first. Nike got there. Yeah, maybe by virtue of the fact that they had a midsole foam. Anyway, on we go. Right, on we go. Okay, how do we adapt? Yeah. And one of the big things we look at, if we go back to the Adi Zero Pro, is okay. Maybe had a carbon insert. But Which is the, just just to make it clear where Sorry. we are with this. That was the first sort of version of these new range of super shoes that you guys brought out. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it was more of a move on from where we've been in the past with full boost midsole, torsion system and things like that. And then it was understanding actually, is boost something we should continue with in this space? Or should we try and look for other alternatives? And where we've got to as a full range is different. So colors. why did you feel the need to find another alternative? What, what was the driver behind that? Twofold really. The first one was from a full range point of view mm-hmm. because we used boost across loads of different shoes. Yeah. And it became really difficult to say, okay, this boost shoes for fast running, this boost shoes for long running, this boost shoes for everyday running. If you walk into a store, you're like, well, I just want a boost shoe, right? At the time. So that was one thing. So we felt we needed a point of view. So yeah. we needed a point of view. Yeah, but- sorry to interrupt you in your absence there, Simon. One point on that was... <laughs> Remember Boost came out with a promise that it returned more energy than any other midsole cushion at the time because Boost was basically TPU, this polyurethane that had been compressed into. And they had this neat, um, I mean, gadget gimmick that they used to demonstrate where they'd give you normal midsole material that had been rolled into a ball and Boost and you dropped them from the same height and one bounced twice the size of the other. Right. Evidence proof. I went to the launch, I remember that. Um, The interesting thing about that is the, the shoe was successful because Gabriel Selassie ran in it, Kometa ran in it, Emmanuel Mutai was an Adidas athlete. So they, whether it was the shoe or just the fact that they had the best five or six marathon runners, I don't know. But scientifically, the claim they made, and I remember seeing one abstract 
presented at a footwear conference in South America somewhere. My, my PhD student, Nick, came back to me with it. It was like a 1% difference in economy. That's hmm. smaller than the normal day-to-day variation. So it doesn't count in my scientific understanding of it, right? Okay. So I'm looking at that and saying they're claiming 1%. But if I measured myself every day of the week for two weeks, I would vary by more than a percent day-to-day for no reason other than that's just what happens. Yeah. So that, that 1% was not a worthwhile difference which was the difference because then you see 4%, that's way bigger than day-to-day variation. Mm. And that was the, anyway, that's just a, a yeah, point. It's on, an interesting one because it shows you almost the marketing speak that was involved there. You could show mm. a, a, the difference in a, in a bouncing piece of foam, but giving it a percentage, you're right, 1% means nothing in this grand scheme of things. Then but again, you could say there was potential advantage even on boost technology. The problem, And the problem is marketers exploit 1% because they say, you know, the average difference between first and second is half a percent. Yes. But it doesn't quite translate like that. To the average guy at the back of the well, field. That, and even even there, like 1% on the energy saving of a shoe doesn't necessarily mean 1% in performance improvement. Mm. And because it's smaller than the worth than the than the day-to-day variation, it's it's unlikely to have any meaningful real world implications. And so that was I think a point worth making. And that's why I was going back when I I remember I was in the States when the press release came out about the Vaporfly and we were going oh, another marketing claim, but four percent—that's a big marketing claim because yeah. that is large enough to make a difference. So. Yeah. Okay. Back to Simon. We came across Lightstrike and then Lightstrike Pro. Came across the teams were working on it for several months and years in development phase, and end up with a shoe or with a foam that's super responsive, super cushioned, and if you build it with these certain geometries like we see in the Pro One and the Pro Two. And now the Pro 3 that you saw today, mm. suddenly you can create this magic formula that can help someone go faster. So it was a an understanding we need to try and change up a little bit, change the game in terms of what we're bringing. So what, what I'm interested in is obviously yeah. it was a huge amount of hype around Boost. It was a energy return system. It was marketed as such. And that was the... So when you're suddenly now going, okay, we've got to make something better. How do you start the process of finding out something that's better? In other words... Okay, we need to find something that's more responsive. Yep. How do you do that? What's the, what's the what's the jump? <laughs> so I think it's a great question. So first, I mean, Boost is an amazing technology, everyday running, as you mentioned, cushioned energy return. But then we wanted something that was lighter, but that had all those great properties as well. And really, that is our development teams, along with our chemical engineering teams and our innovation teams, coming together and trialing and trialing, testing different foams different properties, different compounds. And really by factor of how many things you test, you then find yourself, okay, A and B together or B and C together. It really is. It's and you come up with a cool process. name and suddenly you've got a new firm. Exactly. Because the first Adios, relatively speaking, in terms of what you would normally take to develop a shoe, was a fairly rapid six, seven month process. Yep. Because you were reacting to some extent, but also accelerating because of the world, uh, I assume the Olympics. Yeah. Is that, is that, I mean, is it, so that, that development of developing new foam, there was obviously some late nights involved in that, were there? For the team, definitely. Definitely. There was a lot of late nights, a lot of late calls with different people in different yeah. parts of the world to try and pull it off. But then what the team managed to turn around in such a short space of time was incredible. Mm. And that was purely based on one, trialing, but two, working with our athletes, which is such an important part of what we do. 
we could sit here in Herzo and think we've got something amazing, but until you've got it on someone's foot yeah. and they see them run fast and they give you the direct feedback, you have no idea. So that's what the team managed to do. One, turn the whole thing around quickly and accelerate the whole project, knowing where the whole world was shifting to within this sport. But then also managing to link in with our elite athletes to say, look, believe in us, we've got something, but we need your feedback. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So this was a fascinating part of the conversation because Simon essentially, as you hear, admits that they were under some pressure to produce a shoe because their athletes, first of all, were demanding that they were able to keep up with Nike athletes. And second of all, they couldn't just produce something in a lab because they had to produce something that did work on an athlete's foot because essentially mm. you can do a whole bunch of stuff in the lab, but unless you're actually running faster on human feet, there's, there's no point in the technology. Yeah, and it does sound from the way that he spoke there that they were – a little bit blindsided. The, mm-hmm. the fact that they needed to revisit whether their midsole cushioning was correct is a big deal. I yeah. mean, because it basically, and maybe I'm reading too much here between the lines, but they would potentially have tried to do what Nike had done with Boost midsole mm-hmm. and then found that the shoe weighed 400 grams. Mm-hmm. So they must have said, well, okay, we can't go in this direction with these uh, ingredients. Mm-hmm. And it would be interesting to know whether there was an email thread or a call or whatever it was <laughs> in which someone said, where are we going to find something that performs with the same properties as, as that Zumax or that PBAX material? PBAX, yeah. Because Lightstrike eventually becomes their, their response to it, right? Mm. Um, and I'm assuming they can't copy what PBAX is because there's patents well, involved. Well, in that, that. and that was the other thing I was going to say. Is remember, <laughs> they, they came up with a carbon plate that had five rods. Yes, was different to that them. that seems to me like a way to get around the because the the remember the world athletics guideline allowed a carbon plate but not overlapping plates but i don't know that they could do a carbon rod because the patent application by nike sought to protect that mm. so maybe the rods was a way around that that would have been interesting to know actually yeah. is to what extent was this innovation lawyers or scientists <laughs> yes, <laughs> and athletes because then he talks about testing the athlete and i've always wondered about that i mean you get you get six guys are coming into your lab there and six men six women the men are 205 marathon runners the women are 218s and you test the shoe like what are you measuring how do you know it's working when if you find 1% improvements, you've done well? What do you yeah. measure? I wonder. Anyway. Yeah. And also, if you're drilling on a treadmill versus a real-world situation, right. which is also fascinating. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Right. Let's listen more of Simon. Did you feel pressure from athletes? Where's, where's Adidas shoe? Because obviously at the time, everybody was considering, well, we have to go to Nike because that shoe's got performance benefits. Therefore, you know, and there was a lot of athletes – panicking in that situation because we have spoken to athletes that were sponsored by other brands like Hoka for instance who took obviously were reacting and they were under enormous pressure to create a product that was competitive for those athletes yeah I mean it's again it's you know when you work with athletes it's about understanding you want them to feel like we are bringing something that can help them get mm. faster we talk about it all the time in the past few days well at least be on a par at that point 
Well, yeah, you, you know, yeah. you want to you want to give them something where they feel like they believe in us, right? And you want to show that we're we've got something and that we're now on the right path. Like right. We're going, we're going places. And did you feel that pressure from the athletes? Were there, were there questions being asked by athletes, going, "Hey, guys, you need to"? Yeah, I mean, you yeah. get a lot of questions, and you get you get a lot of questions. Unsure, like, okay, what what are you doing? And you almost have to show your hand early with our athlete family and say, "Look, this is what we've got. This is what we're working on," because you want them to feel secure and you want them to trust you as a as a partner as well. Mm. It should be back and forth. It isn't just you know a brand to an athlete. So definitely feel that. Mm. But I like to think that it never went so extreme because of the speed of the project. Mm. We managed to bring the pro one, and suddenly everyone's like, "Okay, now we're in something." Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, obviously, other brands have given percentage of numbers that you can be better as a runner, better efficiencies, that sort of thing. Adidas have never done that. They've never said you're five, six, seven, eight percent, one percent, whatever, better than you would normally be. Why not? Some of it comes down to, you know, the process of being able to claim that sort of benefit is a long process for sure. The speed of the project was quite quick, so mm. we have to go with something. And one of the cool things we have, say with the Pro 1 and now the Pro 2, is we don't feel always feel we have to go with the number up front and try and convince people. Because I think by virtue of the fact that people were breaking records, topping podiums in the shoe immediately, mm. for us was amazing validation enough and allowed us whilst that was happening to then behind the scenes, start working on next gen and next gen after that. Yeah, so this is the bit, Mike, where I thought, and as I said in the intro before we even played the interview, where I feel like their, their lack of willingness to commit to data publicly doesn't help. Because I get, I get what he's saying about making a claim about performance. Because remember the Vibram five-finger shoes eventually got sued. And basically, that's one mm. of the reasons they don't exist anymore. is because they made claims around injury prevention. And then, right. of course, a whole bunch of people bought them and got injured. Mm-hmm. And they lost that case because they made claims that were unsubstantiated. Mm. But if you measured 15 runners in a laboratory and you measured oxygen consumption and economy and comfort and impact forces and whatever else... You could publish that in a scientific paper and not make any claims against it, but they don't even do that. Yes, but I mean, in the, in their defence, are we not suggesting that maybe Nike were disingenuous because their claims are four percent? Not everyone's going to get a four percent advantage. But you see, Nike never claimed a four percent advantage. They claimed a four percent reduction in oxygen costs. And it's semantics, but it's, it's an semantics. important semantic. But it's an important one because Nike yeah, will never be so. Nike will never be on the receiving end of a runner who's actually litigating on the basis that I got the shoe and I only improved by two and a half percent. Because they can very easily say, "Well, we made no promise that you'd get two and a half percent faster. We made a promise that in fifteen athletes, who t- I don't know how many it was tested in that initial Colorado study. I'm mm. making fifteen up now, but in a group of athletes, we tested the shoe on the average reduction in oxygen cost of running was four percent." And we knew that that would be beneficial for performance. But their marketing suggested by 4% calling the shoe the 4% that there was always a suggestion that there was an improvement of 4%. They knew that the consumer and the general population wasn't going to be discerning enough to Mm. distinguish between a 4% economy benefit and a Mm. 4% performance benefit. Yes. But, and so while while I'm all for. Which I find disingenuous, in all honesty, but I guess. On the part of? In the the case of, of Nike. 
purely because, as you said, it's a, they're spe- specifying an advantage as opposed to the marketing message, which is suggesting that there is a, an absolute advantage in terms of running speed and efficiency. You see, I don't, I, again, I don't see the marketing <laughs> message as specifying that there's an advantage in running speed. The marketing mm. message was the shoe makes you 4% more econ- economical. Mm. And if other people want to read between the lines and, and arrive at a 4% performance <laughs> benefit incorrectly, then that's their problem. Yeah. But the point was they were transparent about it and it gave them significant credibility. I can't speak for everyone else, but the fact that it was... And then, of course, it wasn't the first paper that did the deal. It was the fact that then someone else who wasn't funded by Nike, like that first lab, came and basically repeated it. Now you say, actually, this thing might be real, you know? Yeah. Um yeah, and and you know they were it was clever of them to name it four percent because mm. everyone thought it was a four percent performance benefit. Mm. But to me, the fact that other shoe companies haven't done the same, when the moment he refuses to answer that question, my as I said, my natural deduction is it's not four percent. No? Yeah, I, I guess I'm so, more believing that he it was difficult for them to absolutely measure what the advantage was, and they couldn't why? call it five percent because that would have been. From a marketing perspective. But why would it be difficult to measure what it was? They just have to yeah. repeat the protocol. We know exactly what was done in those first two or three studies on the Vaporfly. <laughs> yeah. So, and they had to have done it. Yeah. yeah. They had to have done it. It's basic yeah. lab testing. So you think they would have known what the performance advantage was based Not on the their performance lab. one. Well, the, 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 the physiological, physiological advantage. They would definitely be know. They would know it yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. They wouldn't have gone into production with it unless they thought they it was said slightly no. better. But yeah. The failure to commit to it relative to Nike means most people, I think, would assume that it's not as good. Yeah. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. So you knew on that first edition when the athletes were wearing that shoe and they would be competitive that you brought the shoe out that was able to now compete with your other competitor. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That must have been a real relief. It was a relief and it was (laughs) an amazing moment for us just in terms of like this worked. And the scale of the project wasn't huge. It wasn't, you know, where we are now is so much yeah. focus and so much energy behind it. At the time, it was a super small project group that basically drop everything and go, right, we are now bracing footwear. Mm. We have to pull this off. It was like a, the, war, a, war, a war room of sorts, I guess. And the team, exactly, yeah. the team involved, it's bringing each individual to the table that has, you know, experience in this field, experience in this field, whatever it might be. And the team that pulled that off was so when Perez broke the record in Prague, that was a huge moment of one, validation, and two, just huge relief, knowing that what we did works. And that immediately was the next, like that was the leapfrog stage, I think. All right, so you just heard a few moments ago, and I'm, I'm, I'm basically taking us back to the discussion we had before that little bit. He's saying that they were relieved when Perez Tipchitcha broke the world half marathon record because all the technology that they come with was now happening. Does that not support the theory that they didn't know in a lab scenario whether the shoe was going to perform better or not? Yeah, for sure. But again, lab studies are not going to allow you to make confident performance predictions at scale. Right. They allow you to predict that conceptually – performance will be improved because what the lab has tested is the physiological and the mechanical responses. So in the lab, they would have worked out maybe ground contact time is slightly lower. Stride length is slightly higher. Oxygen cost of running at 3 minutes 24 seconds is lower than it is in their previous model of shoe. So they would have had 
all the data necessary to say, you know what, this shoe is making a difference to the body. And given what we know about the physiology of running, everything suggests that this athlete will perform better in the shoe. Mm. But you never know that until you test it in the okay. only true uh, test tube that exists, which is the race situation, right? And that's, so that's the point I was making earlier, and I don't know if it was clear, is that Nike came out with a shoe named after a physiological finding and let the world deduce what it would do for performance. <laughs> Um, incorrectly, but what they and what they've refused to effectively commit to is what their physiological finding is. And as a physiologist, again, I'm biased, and maybe only one percent of the world cares. But I would love to get this shoe, uh, the Nike one, the Brooks one, the Asics one into lab and test twenty athletes and actually make these comparisons because I'm interested in that. And they've, they've, there's no doubt they've got that data. <laughs> in my opinion, I'd love to see that study as well. <laughs> Did you ever feel that I just wish we'd done that first shoe? Did, did, did you ever did you ever feel that that was something? Um, oh, I wish we thought of that. No, I don't no. think so because we know that we've always been working on projects and we've always been bringing amazing shoes, and that's not just within Adi Zero. We've set benchmarks in industries where we think about Boost or Ultra Boost and all these amazing shoes across the whole range. So I think don't think as a group. It's ever self-pity, oh, we should have been there or whatever. Because we knew we always yeah. do it. We just had to focus and we did and that's what we produced. Yeah. Tell us about, from Adidas's perspective, if I said the word the shoe wars, do, do you perceive it as a shoe war with all the different brands? And I'm not talking specifically only about Nike, you know, because obviously lots of other brands are bringing out these carbon-plated shoes and the technology is now developing over the last couple of years. Is it is it a war? Do you think about who can produce the fastest perception, fastest shoe in the world? Honestly, I don't. I don't take it like that. Really, I think it's what we're doing and what the whole industry is trying to do is just make the sport as best as we can. You know, we often talk about this idea of you know you're in a spot for a couple of years and you've got to leave it in a better place than where you found it. I think it's the old all black saying with the jersey. And I think that's what we do and that's what we like to think everyone else is doing as well because you want to help improve the sport. That gets eyes on the sport and people around the world suddenly then go, oh, mm. marathon running's pretty cool. You know, that 10K was pretty good or the 5K. Even today getting texts, you know, people watching at home that don't really watch running, but suddenly you send them a link, oh, you might be, you might enjoy this for the next 15 minutes and suddenly yeah. everyone's like, oh, that's amazing. So I like to think the progression of technology shoes it's just contributing to elevating the sport generally i think i think initially there was always that question and um the traditionalists will tell you that the technology of shoes has ruined the human endeavor that we've seen obviously world records broken not necessarily at will but lots of them broken over the track and the, and particularly on the road since these super shoes came out just like to know what your thoughts are around that. It's probably not your direct point of concern, but do you think that the technology is taken on from, if you look at the runners of the past, Haley Gibraltar-Selassie, a prime example of that. We ran with him yesterday, what a privilege yeah. that was. But we were talking to him afterwards and we said to him, how do you feel about the fact these shoes have come out now after you retired? And he says he's very jealous of that because he felt that he would be two or three minutes faster and potentially could have broken the two-hour mark for him as an athlete, which is which would have been insane, a, a huge insane <laughs> statement. But it, does it does it feel that technology has now become the driver rather than the athlete, taken away from what the athlete does? I don't think so. 
I don't think so. Seeing these athletes in their hometown, whether it's within, in training camps in Eton or whether in Addis Ababa, what they go through on a daily basis, whether it's the early runs, cleaning their stuff, nutrition, everything. The shoes are a part of what they do. It's their tool, if you like. That's how I like to think about mm. it. But seeing every other sacrifice they make as humans, individuals, you know, with families and all this stuff, that's their sacrifice still trumps everything, I think. We are providing them a tool mm. that's helping them hopefully go faster at some point and we can keep helping them push those boundaries. But I don't think it's become the driver. And I don't think it, I don't think it will, certainly whilst I'm doing this for sure. Yeah, I guess I think for a lot of traditional track and field and running people, they'll always be worried that the technology will become a technology war rather than a human war, um, which I, I guess to some extent is the fear. Well, I think the, the interesting, I always, for some reason, go to like a Formula One. Mm. And I think about the progression of Formula One cars over, I don't know, the last 20 years. Like they've got significantly faster and everything. But still the individual talent of the driver mm. to control it, understand it and everything. That's the, the jury's out on that one though, isn't it? <laughs> so if I was on the jury <laughs> and I came back in on that one, I would definitely disagree with that assertion. Because I don't think you can tell whether the driver makes the difference. The, the only thing about Formula One that you could maybe say in redemption of that is that the driver is involved so closely in the development of the car that by the mm. time the car makes it onto the start line of a race, the driver's actually been instrumental to the technology. Mm. So it's a partnership, it's a dance or a, a collaboration, a marriage, you know? But I mean, the, the, the study to do would be to, to de-logo, de-identify all the cars, paint them all the same black, and then randomly allocate them to drivers for two years. And I, I guarantee you there'll be no, I almost guarantee you there'll be no predictive power based on driver performance and all the prediction exists in the car. But I guess the, the caveat to that is that all of those drivers at Formula One have reached a certain level of expertise. So there's the mm. gaps between Lewis Hamilton exactly. versus Pierre Gasly for instance, is probably very marginal and yeah. the difference is actually in the car because yeah. their ability is the same. That's exactly the, that's the, that's mm. the fundamental point. I mean, mm. more than just the caveat, that's the point. And, mm. you know, the bits that he said there about the athletes still sacrifices, still trans, no one disputes that. I don't think anyone has ever said the shoe will make it, um, you know, the shoe will d detract from the runner's contribution. The, the point is that the runner is now going to produce a 202 off the same physiological, psychological, emotional time and energy investment. Mm. The same sacrifice, the same training, the same nutrition is now going to be rewarded with a time two minutes faster than it was. And, and like Gabriel Selassie, I don't think he would have gone sub two. I don't think the shoe helps that much. Um, he was a generation and a set of shoes behind. Mm. But still, I don't know how we compare him to Kipchoge. Mm. You know, that's the guy whose record was broken by Kipchoge. And I suspect that that first, I suspect those performances are probably quite similar physiologically. Yeah. Yeah. The difference is one guy had a shoe and the other one had iteration previous, you know. So anyway, the, the, no one's ever saying, I don't think, that, that it means that you can achieve it easier. It just means you can achieve a faster thing off the same. Mm. And that skews the comparison. Yeah. Okay. You still need the human skill yeah. to control whatever they're in. And that's the same with running or any elite sport. You know, you could put 
the best footballer in the world in a certain boot, mm. they've still got to go out there and score the free kick. Mm. You know, you can't control that. So mm. I think it's definitely a part of it, but I don't think it's ever going to maybe take over. Mm. So looking at the technology now, obviously there is limitations which have been defined by World Athletics in terms of the height of the sole of the shoe, etc., etc. If those limitations weren't there and you had a completely open sheet of paper and you said, right, we can do whatever we like here, is is it possible to create something that would just blow the lights out? I mean, do the restrictions on World Athletics curtail some of the technology that you could bring in, for instance? I think there's, well, I think there's two things. I think one, you know, take our Prime X. Yes, which is example. effectively an illegal shoe, isn't it? Totally. From Compared a to World Athletics, yeah. yeah. 50 millimeters, double rods, double foam, throwing everything at it and it's an amazing shoe yeah but in within this team I think the world athletics regulations are there for a reason so that you know there is some sort of level but I also think it flips it because I think technology has to become smarter and has to become better if I think cushioning or Mm. energy return within those limitations so actually in the long run you might find that you're discovering better technologies because you have to focus and have to make things work within a rule set. If that rule isn't there, maybe you're not as focused. Maybe you're talking hypothetical, but still, I think it's quite an interesting, Mm -hmm. when you have that, okay, you've got all this, but you do it within this box, then you start to challenge yourself and become very creative on how you build things, engineer things, which Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. feels like quite a nice challenge. Yes, I'm interrupting him this time because I want to know from you whether you, because you were face to face across the table from the guy and Mm. did you get the impression that he, because he answered it very wisely and considerately with great thought, but did you get the impression they welcomed the restrictions? Or did he say anything off air that gave you any insight beyond that answer? No, what you hear is what questions I asked him, but I think generally having spent three days there, there was some... I guess there was a sense that that, that that the restrictions and the controls were better because it allowed you, they weren't going something wasn't going to come out of left field. Mm. That was there was an overriding sense that you wouldn't Nike weren't going to develop some new technology that was just going to come out of the left field and suddenly obliterate everybody again. Yeah. Um. So I, I guess that yeah, if, if if it was there was probably an undertone of that. Yeah. yeah. So it's a safer yeah. it's a safer place now because of the, yes. the the boundaries that have been created. Yeah. And certainly yeah. when World Athletics announced them. Aside from what you alluded to earlier, where they set it almost exactly at the point that would permit the the existing shoe, <laughs> um, it was a good step. In my opinion, it wasn't sufficient because mm. they allowed it to be forty mils. They could have come down to thirty or twenty seven mm. or whatever it was, you know. But anyway, mm. I, as a principle, I think I probably agree with them. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, you're obviously working probably right now on technology and shoes that are going to come out and. 18 months to maybe even two years. Is that the sort of league time? And would we, shoot, would we see what you're starting to think about now in 2024, 25? From within our team, we work on similar timelines, on those timelines, mm. more in terms of trying to think what's next. I think as a rule within Adi creation, it's never standing still. It's always, okay, you saw the Pro 3 today. Okay, but how... How would we make that better? Mm. And there's always this rolling thing of, okay, how are we going to get better? How are we going to make it faster? And is there a point where you can't make it any better? I suppose that's always, is that something you consider? Is the shoe maxed out? 
the Pro 3 is an incredible shoe, but I still think we can, I still think, you know, a few years down the line, if you give people more time, the right people more time, maybe you can keep pushing those boundaries. But within Adidas as well, we have such an amazing innovation team who are thinking further ahead. And that's not just based on tech, mm. because the tech, you know, you've got to keep going with, but it's trying to understand how what the runner will be like in six, seven, eight years. What will the So you're even be? thinking that far down the line? From an innovation point of view, thinking really far ahead as to where yeah. the direction of the brand will go, where the direction of running footwear will go. Because then you have to build, you know, if you understand, or you try and think about maybe the runner in that timeline. Again, it's difficult to think that far ahead. You're really far into the future. But yeah, that's where, you know, mm. always thinking about those next steps and those next milestones that you potentially achieve. What do you think the, the future of running shoes looks like in terms of, well, let's talk, maybe split it into two. What does the future of performance shoes look like versus the everyday shoe for somebody like me, for instance? Who won't run in a Primex because it's pointless. <laughs> <laughs> you should. You should give it a try. Um, I think, you know what? I think everyday running, if you take what we've maybe learned over the past 5, 10, 15 years, comfort is a word that is should be synonymous with any shoe. No one's picking an uncomfortable shoe for sure. Because that's all about the point of sale when, you, when you're... I think it's sending a shoe to somebody that's got to feel comfortable when they put it on, don't they? Exactly. I mean, we think about it as big, different stages of moments of truth. Mm. The first moment of truth is the first time you see a shoe. The second moment might be picking it up. Third might be putting it on. And that element of comfort and that super soft step in, I don't think is going to change because mm. people are always going to want that, I think. So for everyday running, I think it's that. Maybe it gets lighter. Maybe you try to build something that's super soft, plush, you know. I think from a racing point of view... Do you I think shoes have become... And I've noticed this on Runner's World. Shoes have become less controlled. So, you know, in the 1990s, you had motion control shoes, which don't exist anymore. Now you have stability, and most shoes are neutral now, aren't they, really? You would have a lot of... Yeah, I mean, there's definitely fewer control shoes. A lot of stability or support today comes through... I think comes through stability through geometries. Mm. So wider platforms, maybe some higher stack heights, which give you that more cushioning. So you've got higher stack cushioning on a wider platform, like our Adistar, for example. That is today's answer to maybe yesteryear's stability issue. Yeah. Because it allows more people to step into maybe one shoe as opposed to having multiple things to choose from. Yeah, so you've got, you've got, you've got neutral loss, but the stability comes from other factors within the shoe. Exactly. Yeah. So you're yeah. not naming it as a stability shoe. No. I mean, it's kind of something unsexy about that, isn't it? <laughs> it's hard to put it, you know, in a certain box on a wall, but even how you build a medial side of an upper mm-hmm. can impact someone's perception of how they think is that shoe stable or not. It could be the same platform, but you can have a totally different medial side upper. Mm. Fits very differently. Someone thinks that one's a neutral, some that that's a stable. Yeah. Um so I think I really I actually think, yeah, comfort. Maybe wider platforms and maybe a bit more of a universal fit, potentially, making this up, to be honest. We don't know what's going to happen in five, ten years. What is a universal fit? More the idea of geom- like stable through geometries. Right. So not necessarily building mm. all-out true stable shoes. Maybe more in this neutral, stable world, mm. potentially. Personalized? Is there any future in personalized shoes that can be personalized to your foot in some way? I think as a platform and an innovation for D. If I think about what yeah. we have within the range, 4D is certainly 
for those of you who don't know what that looks like, it's like a lattice construction in the in the, in the sole, isn't it? I've exactly. Got a pair of those. So it's built from essentially athlete data and runner data that goes into constructing a midsole that we can print. Right. So it's not the traditional way of building a mold and then you open the mold and you take it out. You actually almost grow it. So you can tune through programs the different lattice structures where you have support, where you don't have support. So in it, other words, potentially down the line, I could go into a store or an editor something and say, they test my shoe or my foot and they would say, right, this person needs more support. You create a lattice shoe which has more support in certain areas. So the so the sole becomes bespoke to you as a runner. Is that what you're saying? That, I mean... Potentially. Potentially. Yeah. Why not? I mean, that's a pretty cool idea. Um, yeah. And that's what 40 has always been based on, is this idea of it's coded for the runner. At the minute, the runner is, you know, 40 Ford that we have in the market. I mean, for you as somebody at the head of this, I mean, it's obviously something that must be quite exciting that how do you create this ultimate bespoke shoe? I suppose that, that is the holy grail of running shoes to some extent, isn't it? It's a, It could be a super interesting one thing to happen to challenge for a team to, okay, how would we do this? Mm. How would you do it at scale? How would you do it in stores, different locations? Mm. But I certainly think 40 years of tech is amazing, innovative. Forward thinking is certainly on that path of, more a midsole coded for a runner right now, and then you take out that runner and whoever in the future potentially. Because mm. we've seen stuff in cycling where you get a foam that you can put in a cycling shoe, you put it in the microwave for 30 seconds, you put it in the shoe, you stand on it, and it cools to the shape of your foot. Yeah. <laughs> which is interesting in cycling that it happens, but I've never seen that in running, which is bizarre because it feels like a natural thing in running that could happen. You know? Yeah, I'm unsure. I mean, I've bought a lot of cycling shoes in the past. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, back to like universal, which is a broad topic, but I guess maybe the, the platform is maybe quite standard within those. So a midsole, insole, sorry, gives you a bit more personalized feeling. Yeah. Whereas if you buy a running shoe and put a running shoe on, your foot can adapt to the different foams, the different cushioning technologies. I think your the impact is very different, obviously, from yeah. a running cycling perspective. Yeah. Well, Simon, thanks very much for your time. I think you've got the kind of job that uh, most of us would love to have. I think the guys from the <laughs> Innovation Lab themselves have amazing jobs. I mean, yeah. is, do you love going to work every day? It must. It's challenging, I guess, and scary, but also great fun. It's incredible. And to think, you know, you've been here for the past few days as well. This is an amazing place to work One, The campus is incredible. And just to come in with this team, have these products on the table and knowing what we're trying to cook and what we're trying to change and where we go forward. It's pretty spectacular. And I've, you know, been a part of Adidas for nearly eight years and been with Global just over two. And I still feel like a little kid <laughs> when you get a new sample or a new prototype or someone sends you a picture of what we've done here. Yeah. And then to think an athlete will wear it in a race, that's a pretty special connection yeah. and feeling. So, yeah, it's amazing. I guess it's like, yeah, when you start with an embryonic diagram on a whiteboard and then you said city on the shoes of the runners we've seen this morning yeah yeah that must be very satisfying yeah when you speak to the design development say okay we want to make a fast 510k shoe and you go through all your spiel that you've been practicing your presentation yeah. this is why we need to do xyz and then you produce you know all the team producer takumi sen 8 that yeah. goes on to i've got those on right now and i'll tell you what they are spectacular yeah uh, exactly even for a lot ass like myself <laughs> <laughs> Simon, thanks very much for your time thank you thank you 
Cool. So, yeah, that was the interview with Simon. Uh, fascinating to talk a little bit at the end of that around what he sees the future of technology looking like. And I asked him about, you know, the development of bespoke shoes. I know there is some talk about that with their particular brand of shoe, their forward shoes that they have. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating to think what would happen 10 years down the line, five years down mm. the line. Will you be able to walk into a shop and get a shoe that is made specifically for your foot? I think that that time must come. That must be the next step, I would think, in shoe development. Yes, and I think also comfort and injury prevention are probably the um, end goals of whatever iterations come next because the boundaries that have been created around shoes now, I think, have closed off the degree to which we can advance performance unless there's another new foam. You know, but I would consider that evolution, not revolution. But maybe what you asked him about there at the end is the key. And, you know, it's interesting, even on the on these shoes um, – I always thought the most interesting thing and, and moving forward, the most concerning thing is the responder, non-responder issue. <coughs> Amazingly, in the first batch of studies, the first two or three studies, they didn't document non-responders to the shoe. Uh, everyone got better. Some of them got better by 1%, which, as I mentioned, is probably zero. <laughs> Some of them got better by 8%. I've subsequently seen a study on recreational runners, you know, the likes of you and I, where there are non-responders to these mm. carbon bouncy shoes, super shoes. Mm. So quite clearly that's going to happen. The, the aforementioned Nick Tam, who, who d- is now working in the shoe industry, did his PhD on barefoot running and shod running. And we found the same thing there. Some athletes, you took the shoes off and they changed their foot strike pattern instantly without instruction. Other athletes, eight weeks of barefoot training with lots of instructions still couldn't do it. They mm-hmm. still landed on the heel. And when you... <laughs> When you go and you look at the research that was being published at the time that Nick started his PhD, nobody was recognizing that. You know, the, the Dan Lieberman had come out with a paper on barefoot versus shod running and presented averages. But when you explored the stats of that, you saw he had the same thing. Hmm. And so I do feel a little bit that the shoe industry has given short shrift to individual differences in the past because it's too difficult to cater to every single individual. But what you asked him about there, I think that might be the next technological breakthrough. The only, the only challenge, and I'll wrap up with this, is injury, for instance, is so complex. There's a chain of interconnected parts, joints, muscles, tendons, movements, forces, that is so complex that I don't know that you can accurately target design of a shoe to solve an injury when we don't really have confidence around the mm-hmm. cause in the first place. But that's likely where the next innovation goes, if we can join the dots and solve that problem. So, yeah. yeah. Well, let us know what you think about our debate today about the shoe technology and where do you think shoe technology is going to go, particularly in running? You know, maybe you have some ideas and let us know what you think about uh, what the future looks like in terms of running and technology. And keep an eye out our show for next week. We're going to be bringing you two new features. We're going to have a special section for our patrons. We're going to ask our patrons to tell us what they're thinking about and maybe we can discuss um, what they're going to be considering and we're going to call it Patrons Ponder. So all of our patrons, if you're listening to this, think about questions that you'd like to ask us, things that you've seen in the media and questions that you'd like to discuss on our podcast. And secondly, we're going to be discussing recent papers that have come out with Ross and we're going to take a, a paper from some of the many papers that get delivered every single um, uh, week virtually and we're going to take one of those and Ross is going to analyze it and give us a bit of a, a, a expert view on it. Or, so, or something in the news. I mean, like it's French news. Open. Maybe something really interesting happens in the tennis yeah. and so exactly. we'll call it, we'll call the segment Caught yeah. My Eye 
and either Mike or I will say something caught my eye this week and we'll spend a few minutes just chatting about it. Exactly. So a bit of a revamp show for next week. We look forward to seeing you and speaking to you then. Goodbye. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.